0: Well, if you're one of those people who are terrified by bees, I have some bad news, and I have some good news for you. The bad news is that at this time of the year, when you might expect because of the cooler temperatures and the oncoming winter, you might expect bee activity to go down and maybe go away. The bad news is that it's right at this time When a number of uh, bee hives around you will be kicking out some of their inhabitants. They will literally push them out the door to spend the remainder of their short life roaming around and buzzing around looking for trouble. That's the, the bad news, I guess. When you might be hoping the bees were gone for a while. The good news is that these bees who are being pushed out of their hives are the drone bees or the male bees. They're the smaller and paler, uh, I guess you could say smaller and paler than their sister bees. And the good news is they don't have stingers. So while they may still buzz you in the backyard and while they may still harass you. In fact, they have been known to uh, swarm at people and buzz them quite furiously in order to disorient you and, and to throw you off. And when that happens, while you may be feeling an increase in heart rate and maybe an increase in your blood pressure and a sense of panic and a desire to run, all you need to do is tell yourself you're safe. They can't sting you. I know that's easier said done in the moment, we can say that now while there are no apparently bees present. But the reason I tell that little story is to highlight one of the chief components of the passage before us today in First Corinthians fifteen, the final nine verses of that chapter. And you probably recognize this passage by the famous quotation that Paul gives from the Old Testament in verse fifty-five: "O death." Where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Paul's finishing up one of the greatest dissertations, one of the greatest treatises anywhere that you'll find on the resurrection. And he rounds out his topic with this famous mockery, this famous taunt, or, or this famous ridicule, we would say of the whole concept of death, a kind of mockery and ridicule of death that is so contradictory to anything that you might experience from someone else or anything that you might experience or expect of someone who truly faces death or even thinks about death. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says that every one of us who's born into this world are born in a sort of slavery. A slavery to the fear of death. And if you ever doubt it, just pay attention to how much time and energy and money people invest in avoiding or putting off death. Enormous amounts of attention given to our safety and our health and our eating habits, and all of those things all seemingly consumed with prolonging the inevitable death that awaits us. The Bible describes this slavery, this lifelong fear that we're in that dominates everyone, although some try to dismiss it by philosophical musing. Jean-Paul Richter, the famous German philosopher, said, death gives us sleep eternal youth, and immortality. Or more crassly, in our own culture, Jimmy Buffett sings, I'd rather die while living than live while I'm dead. But this is the way people try to escape this fear, this bondage that they have, by telling themselves these little lies, or suppressing, or in some cases, completely ignoring the subject of death. I've been amazed sometimes being with people in their final hours, sometimes their final moments before death, and to hear how their mind and their mouths are filled with nothing but the frivolous. Literally, minutes before people pass into eternity, spending time talking about some of the most superficial and frivolous stuff. I contrast that all to one man that I was with in the hospital as he died, a wonderful, godly man. In fact, he gave me almost a third of the books in my personal library. Just a wonderful, avid reader, lover of the scripture, lover of theology. And I just so distinctly remember being with him and all he wanted to talk about was the transformation that was about to take place for him. This is the kind of attitude that Paul has. He faces death like a burglar into his home. And he he stumbles upon him, if you will. And all he does is tease and taunt and mock. There's no foreboding. No sense of fear. So the question is, what would give someone that kind of boldness in the face of death? What would create... That kind of fearlessness. What would so eliminate the anxiety and free you from the slavery of the fear of death? What, what, what is it that, that creates that in a person's character? Well, Paul spells it out in this passage. He, he's finalizing this grand section on the resurrection with four truths that help us transform The way we face death. Or even because of that, it transforms the way that we live. These are really four truths that help us to face death without fear, we would say. Four truths that transform the way that we face death. Let me begin our time just by reading these verses for us. From verse 50 all the way through the end of the chapter, Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. These are four truths given to us in this passage that help us to face death without fear and really practically call us to replace that fear with an anticipation Uh, based on these four realities that he unfolds for us in this passage. And they really sort of build on one another as Paul moves sort of towards a crescendo of transformation in our thinking when it comes not only to the end of life, but to life altogether. Four transforming realities as we face death. First of all, Paul calls us in verse 50 to replace the fear of death with the anticipation of change. Replace the fear of death with the anticipation of change. He tells them here, he begins with this subject of change when he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And the reason he deals with this is because this would have been a fundamental objection of the Corinthians. We've been talking about this for weeks as we've moved our way through this chapter, basically outlining this objection when it comes to the afterlife from the Corinthians. They had this notion of the afterlife that it was nothing more than a spiritual, non-material, ethereal kind of existence. And so they had this. In fact, Paul might have been stating this right off of their own lips when they would say something like this, flesh and blood, meaning the material body, cannot inherit heaven, or what they would say is eternal life, or the kingdom of God, or whatever it might be. And so Paul states this. He goes uh, right at this notion by by stating this point, but at this section, at this Juncture, remember, Paul has completely redefined flesh and blood. Because he has so many times throughout this chapter been talking about the different kinds of bodies, and when he uses the phrase here. He's talking about the particular finite body that we're in. In fact, he spent most of the space between verses 35 and 49 clarifying that there are all kinds of different ways in which God has constructed uh, uh, what we would call uh, organic material or a way he's constructed matter. And he's constructed it in all sorts of bodies, whether it's bodies of animals, bodies of humans, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, all of these things that he's put together demonstrate that God is capable of making a whole variety of bodies from matter. And so what Paul is saying here is that the kind of body that we have right now is indeed not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that no kind of body could ever inherit it. He simply is saying our present body is unfit. See, don't read that phrase and think that somehow Paul is throwing out the idea that we will spend eternity in material bodies. He's just saying that if you plan to spend eternity, you can't spend it in the body you have right now. In fact, that interpretation is clarified by the second half of the verse in verse 50 when he goes on to restate the point, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So when Paul uses flesh and blood, he's talking about the perishable flesh and blood. He's using it in the sense of the human weakness and human frailty of our current form the same way, by the way, that you would find it in most Jewish literature of the time. And the point that he's making here is not that we will not have physical bodies in eternity. The point he's making is the same one he just made back in verse 49, that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is, Adam, so also we will bear the image of the man of heaven, that is, Christ, even now in his resurrected body. He's just saying that our present bodies are not fit for the eternal Kingdom of God. By the way, when he uses that phrase, Kingdom of God, he's using it in the broadest sense of the term. It's used all kinds of ways throughout Scripture. In some cases, it's simply an exchange word for the gospel. Luke, for example, tells us that Paul went about everywhere preaching the kingdom of God. And what it means by that is he's preaching the sovereignty of God over all mankind, including his his role and domain as our judge, but also his potential as our saviour. That is to say that God, from the moment of creation, has always and will always maintain absolute sovereignty over everything. He's always on His throne, right? And so there's an aspect where the kingdom of God has never subsided. But then there's a separate kind of usage that you'll find in the New Testament when it speaks about the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's in a very limited sense when it's talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And in that sense, Christ himself even teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, implying that it is not here. That there's still something that awaits us in the future. And that we need to be anticipating that. But Paul doesn't use either one of those senses. He's using it in the broadest general sense of simply the eternal kingdom of God. By the way, the same way he used it back in verse 24 when he talks about subsequently to the reign of Christ, Christ himself will deliver up the kingdom eternally to God the Father forever. That's the sense in which Paul uses it here. He's not giving some detailed description of every aspect of eschatology. He's not telling us all the sequence of the judgment of God against sinners or all that stuff. All he's doing is simply confronting the misguided notions of the Corinthians who believe that we cannot spend eternity in material bodies. And Paul is simply saying that while we can't spend them in our current bodies, we will spend them in incorruptible and immortal bodies everything he stated so far throughout this chapter bodies of a different sort imperishable wonderfully glorified these bodies will be fit for the environment in which they're intended to dwell forever all this involves the glorious things that Paul has already said about this glorified body, as we mentioned last week, in terms, verse 42 and following, in terms of its imperishability, that is its durability to last forever, its glorious nature, that is its capacity to honor God, its power, that is its resources in service to God, and then finally its spiritual nature in terms of its final victory over sin. All of those wonderful things will be wrapped up in this transformation that Paul says is coming to us. A transformation that will fit us for the kingdom in a way that we are unfit right now. We understand this. We understand that God creates different bodies and they are fit for only certain environments. We know that fish are not fit for the land. We know that birds do not swim in the ocean. We know that there are certain bodies for certain environments. And all Paul is saying here is that in the same way, our glorified bodies will be fit for the glory that awaits us throughout all eternity. It will happen to us. And so we need to replace that fear of death with this anticipation. Of the glorious change that's coming. But that's not where he ends. Because it's not only that that we need to replace. We need to replace the anticipation of death then. Excuse me, the fear of death with the anticipation of the return of Christ. And that's really what he gets to as he builds sequentially on this in verse 51. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. This is a mystery in the sense it's used throughout the New Testament. Uh, Something that was previously unrevealed in the Old Testament that came to revelation or came to light by direct revelation to the apostles in the New Testament era. Something previously unrevealed that now has been revealed. And Paul says this is what's been revealed, that we're not all going to die that we're, all not, we're not all going to face death, that there will be some who will be alive at the moment that Christ returns and that they will be transformed along with all those who previously died and will all be changed. Now, in some sense, this is unrevealed in the Old Testament because while the Old Testament anticipated a resurrection, it said in some places the psalmist would say, I know that in my flesh I will see God. And so there was this expression of hope that you're going to see God in your material body, but there was never any sort of exposition of what that looked like. And so there was always sort of a, a mystery around how our decaying, corrupted bodies could one day stand and see God. And Paul says, that's now been made known that's now been unfolded for us but not just that the whole aspect of the return of Christ and the moment this takes place has been given by revelation to the apostles paul talks about it in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 he says this we say to you by the word of the lord he's not talking about any passage of scripture he's interpreting He's saying by direct revelation, God made known to us, the apostles, this mystery. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Paul's saying this is the change that's coming coming to take place. This is the change that's going to take place and it's going to take place at the coming of Christ. Now he says that in Thessalonians but even here he says it in so many words. As he begins to talk about this in verse 52 he says it's going to happen in a moment literally the word for atom it is in the greek concept the smallest most indivisible particle that you could imagine that's why in english language whenever they discovered atoms they used that word because in their minds that was the most indivisible element of matter that there could be until they obviously found more but that's that's the concept, the smallest the smallest conceivable moment. Or as he says in another place, the twinkling of an eye, which is just sort of a glance, the smallest conceivable sight of something. All of this, he says, will take place not in a process, not in a metamorphosis. It won't be a, a sequence of change, but he says in the split second, we would say absolute transformation. And it'll all take place, he says, at the last trumpet. This is our clue of what he's talking about, this trumpet that's used throughout the New Testament repeatedly to talk about the return of Christ, used in the Olivet Discourse, used in Thessalonians as we saw. I don't think it's the last trumpet that will ever be played throughout all eternity, I I surmise from Scripture that there will be music in heaven. There will be probably musical instruments. There probably will be trumpets of some sort. It's not the final trumpet ever, but the final trumpet of this age. The one which announces the closing of this age and the beginning of the day of the Lord. It's the last trumpet of this era, we might say, and it's announcing to us, first of all, the victory, and more importantly, the arrival of the victor, the arrival of the king. This is the way trumpets were often used. If you look into the Old Testament, you look into the ancient Near East literature, this is what they would do. They would use trumpets to communicate across long distances. And to communicate broadly events and movements and activity, right? They would, they would uh, call their troops into order for war and to uh, battalion. They would announce the arrival of monarchs whenever they were entering a city. And most importantly, whenever they were to returning from victorious battle, these would be the instruments that called forth to the people to, to pay attention and to be on the ready, This is the idea that Paul has here. This last trumpet, he says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. The mortal body must put on immortality. Just restating the point over and over again. It's not that we will have no body. It's that we won't have this one. We'll be changed. Well, all that sort of then proceeds to Paul's next reality that ought to replace our fear of death with an anticipation of a final victory. This is where Paul really crescendos with this whole sense of anticipation. He notes that this time of the last trumpet ushers in a final victory when we who are in these corruptible mortal bodies put on or are clothed upon with incorruptible and immortal bodies. That is the point when we claim our victory over man's final foe, which is death. Paul says that death is literally swallowed up. It's swallowed up. That's a quotation from Isaiah 28, which in that passage speaks of the day of the Lord and the final judgment He'll pour out on the earth. But it, it's, it tells how that it, in that day or at that moment, death is swallowed up forever. And Paul changes that word forever to bring out the emphasis of his point here, which is the final victory of this whole thing. And he continues that theme by quoting a passage from Hosea 13. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's another note of encouragement in the context of judgment. In that particular passage, a judgment or a chastening against Israel when he's saying that he's going to send against Israel all of these nations who are going to be enemies against them but telling them that the final enemy will not defeat them. The final enemy of death, God Himself will destroy. Two Old Testament quotations celebrating the final removal of death. This is the ultimate victory that awaits us. But the reason that we don't need to fear this death The reason that we don't need to fear this even present reality of the decay and final wearing out of our bodies, the reason that we can look to that moment and that day with great anticipation is what he says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin. See, it's not death that people fear. It's what happens after death. This is what people are always trying to get around. It's that sense of foreboding, that sense of helplessness, that sense of weakness, that sense that they who have tried to be the masters of their own fate and the commanders of their own soul, that sense that they will ultimately lose control and really deep down that sense of guilt, that sense of fear, that sense of shame over their own sin. It is that which provides the the angst. It's that which provides the torment. It's that which provides... All of the stirring in their hearts as they think about death or as they approach death, it's the guilt of their conscience weighing down on them. This is the sting, he says. And while for us death might still be a reality in these corruptible bodies, what Paul is telling us is that the sting of sin is not. Now, follow how the way he unfolds this. It is sin which brings this sting. Sin, by the way, which also brought death, is the thing which brings this fear, this anxiety. And he says it is the power. uh, He says the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, God is the one who, in a sense, provided for the reality of sin. The Bible says it over and over again. If there was no law, there would be no sin. Because sin, by definition, is violation of God's law. And so from the very beginning, God gave a few commandments to mankind, you remember Adam and Eve were given a couple of commandments which they broke. And those commandments brought condemnation, it brought, it brought wrath on them and on all of mankind as they represented us. But God didn't leave it at that. Those individual sins would have been enough to bring condemnation for all mankind. But God understood our propensity to justify ourselves, to rationalize, to try to excuse ourselves. And so what God did was he provided a law which which then as Romans chapter 7 says, increased sin. In other words, it just magnified the kind of ways that you can disobey God. And so the scripture says, when the law came in, sin increased. It literally multiplied in that sense. But God didn't do that because He in any way rejoices in sin. He did that in order to make it utterly clear to us, to you, and to me that we are rebels against His will, violators of His standards of holiness, we are bent on rebellion, and we are under His wrath. In other words, He made it abundantly clear by giving this law exactly who we are. We are sinners. And we are under the wrath of God, deserving of His of his punishment because of that. You say, well, what about those people that weren't raised in a Jewish home? What about those people that weren't under the Bible? They didn't know anything about the law. Well, the Bible says even those people have the law of God written on their hearts so that as they go out and they do those things which violate their conscience... They are heaping up in their heart and mind this sense of guilt and shame and angst and all of these things so that they understand their violation of God. They deal with this guilty conscience and it brings the sting of death. In other words, people that haven't even been under the law have some sense of foreboding about a judgment. That awaits them. But Paul says the good news. Is that while the sting of death is sin. And while the power of sin is the law. Christ Jesus. Was completely victorious. Over all of it. That is to say when he came. He kept. Every law. He didn't violate anything. He wasn't subject to the power of sin, and so therefore he was not condemned in any way by the law of God. And as Romans says, what you and I, weak in our flesh, were not able to do, he did by giving himself as an answer to our sinful flesh. That is to say, he provides a righteousness for us that we couldn't achieve and takes the wrath of God that we deserved and he hands us his victory over the law and therefore over sin and therefore over death. Paul says it this way, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says we need to be replacing. This sense of victory. This confidence in the cross. As we face death, this absolute uh, 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 grounded and firm and unshakable confidence in our victory. That while we in this perishable body may still experience the, the presence of sin and the struggles with temptation... That we, because of the work of Christ, are completely free from the eternal consequences of it. As Romans 8 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so based on all of this, based on all these glorious realities, based on all of this, Paul says the fear of death ought to be gone, this anticipation of a change that will take place at the return of Christ because of the victory that will finally and fully be ours on that day. In light of all that, Paul has one more reality that ought to be transforming the way that we think about and the way that we face death. And that is to say that our fear of death Ought to be replaced by a motivation for eternal reward. This is the way he caps the entire chapter. This is the the final exclamation point on 57 verses of exposition of the resurrection. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I love this This just piling up of terminology here. Paul uses the word steadfast. It literally means sitting or seated. And it has the idea it was used of shopkeepers in the ancient world. And if you've been to the third world, you've seen this same kind of phenomenon. Where as day breaks, the shopkeepers will come out and set up their tables and their tents. And they will literally claim a spot. They will sit or they would say they were were squatter's. And you would go, when we were in Africa recently, you would see them alongside the roads as you drove, sometimes three and four rows deep. And you could just imagine them coming out in the beginning of the day and setting up their little uh, shop there, and then someone coming behind them and taking the better real estate in front of them, and then the third wave coming and taking the road frontage in front of them, and all of them claiming their spot. And that's what he's saying. We need to be those who are claiming, who are sitting, who are squatting on the work of the Lord. We need to be claiming our spot in it. And not only that, he says, we need to be immovable. The word is kinatos, or from which we get kinetic, this idea of agitation and movement. But he adds a a negative prefix to it, meaning we're unmovable, Suggesting that we're not to be those who are always just torn up with anxiety and always agitated and always fearful and always worried about the future and tomorrow and all the risk and all these things. Instead, we need to be those who are bold, fearless, ready for sacrifice, courageous in our work. I was admittedly ashamed. As I spent time with Africans a few weeks ago. Knowing how in the back of my mind I boarded a plane worried about a little disease. That had affected a few thousand people over there. Only to be met with men. Who one week every month. Kiss their wives and their kids goodbye. As they journey once again into the face of Islam into the face of disease, into the face of of barrenness and hunger. They go to some of the most difficult places on the face of the earth, and they do it every month. This is what Paul's talking about. In light of the victory, in light of what's awaiting don't be agitated. Don't be so wrapped up with fear that you're now suddenly worried about what you're going to lose and what you're going to give up and what people are going to think about you and how they're going to hurt you or whatever it might be. He says, you need to be immovable. You need to claim your territory. You need to claim your work. And not only that, he says, you need to be perusio, super always overflowing. I would love it if somebody came to me and says, you know, how are things going over there at Faith Community Church? And I were to be able to respond. Well, they're just always going way beyond, way beyond what they ought to, way beyond what they, what, what, what you would think they would do. They're always super abounding. They're overflowing. They're exceeding all the expectations that you can have. That's the problem with those people. They just do too much. That's what Paul's saying. He says we need to be this way in light of what we know about eternity. No fear. No longer subject to those things which cause you to hold back. I was speaking to a pastor recently. And he was bemoaning the fact that people in his church have come up with the idea that if they retire from their jobs, that somehow they retire from the church, that somehow they retire from service to the Lord, that somehow they all become consumed with leisure and and pleasure and relaxation. And I was just thinking about this this week. These people who are on the cusp of eternity, these people who are in their final years before they experience this change, are sometimes doing the least in light of it. Paul says it should be just the opposite. You need to be embracing the sacrifice. You need to be embracing the challenge. You need to be risking more. Laying yourself out there more. Super Unagitated. Unfearful. And going after the work of the Lord. More than ever. Because as he says at the end. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. None of it will be missed by God. None of it will be forgotten. None of it goes unnoticed. Every word of encouragement, every spoken proclamation of the gospel, every, every declaration of His truth, whether it falls on receptive ears or deaf ears, every one of them, God sees it, God knows it, God rewards it. Risk it, Paul says. Go beyond. Risk everything for him. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Here at our church, we don't have an altar call, but there's often an invitation For some of you who came here today and you are just like everyone else, you're weighed down with the sense of guilt. You fear facing God. You fear death because you have no idea what awaits you on the other side. Everything we've talked about this morning is about a confidence, a confidence of people who know their Savior, who know the Lord if you are here this morning and you don't have that confidence, if you don't know Christ, if you have no idea the way that you would spend eternity, I want to encourage you that when we close in a word of prayer here in just a moment that you'd come see me or one of our elders or any of our teachers. We'd love to have the opportunity to open up Scripture and show you from God's Word how you can have this confidence in Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, eternity, In his presence. Father we are grateful for a word this morning. That reminds us of realities. That although they are not seen. We believe them. And although we haven't seen them yet. We want to live in light of them. We want all of our momentary light affliction. To be swallowed up. In thoughts of the eternal weight of glory. That awaits us. May our thoughts and our lives and our minds continue to be transformed by the things that we've heard today. Give us that meditation. Give us that memory. Give us that stirring in our heart. Today, throughout this week, the rest of our days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.